Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, with a message called Prayer and Evangelism. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Until now in our study of 1 Timothy, I think it's safe to say that the subject matter in the book has dealt with internal issues, internal to the life of the church. The book begins by Paul urging Timothy to remain in the problem-plagued church in Ephesus, a church that would eventually become the most important church in the early Christian world. Since so many look to the church in Ephesus for leadership, Paul must have realized how important the internal life of that church was. And so he urges Timothy to remain there in Ephesus. And he was to use the delegated authority he had from Paul to command or to charge the false teachers to cease and desist. And says Paul, when it comes to two of them, that is, to Hymenaeus and Alexander, well, Paul had already excommunicated them. They were disfellowshipped and forbidden from giving leadership. But their influence was still there, and Timothy had work to do. And as I've said, when one begins to read 1 Timothy chapter 1, it seems that everything Paul will have said will have been about the internal dynamics of the church. But that sense will prove to be wrong when we get to chapter 2. So let's start by reading 1 Timothy 2, 1 to 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Now, whenever we read a paragraph in our Bible, we we should be trained to ask the question, what's the principal idea or the big idea or or the key issue of what we've just read? Now, as I see it, there are three possibilities here. So first, we might think that prayers are the main idea. You know, the church should be praying, and that must include the praying for key people in the community. But I don't think that's the key idea, because if you follow me and go halfway through verse 2, you'll find the word that. That could also be translated as so that or in order that. So Paul is saying, I want prayers to be made because I'm looking for a certain outcome. And the outcome is that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives. And so it's the outcome that's the principal idea. And so we might say the reason the paragraph was written is so that Christians can lead peaceful and undisturbed lives. Your prayer should lead to that. But listen now, and I'm going to say that also is not the key idea of this important paragraph. Look again very carefully at this paragraph. Paul says that living a peaceful life is good for, or to the end that, God desires all people to be saved. And there's the key idea. Everything is leading to that one blazing truth, and that's the key idea of this paragraph. It's a paragraph which, at its heart, has a deep concern for the wider community of Ephesus with the understanding that they're lost and God wants them to be saved. And so if we study 1 Timothy 2, 1-4 well, we'll come to the conclusion that this passage was written so that Christians will be motivated to reach out, but not that but rather highly effective in reaching out to their lost culture, bringing them to faith in Christ. And that makes sense, you know, over against the theme of the entire book. See, you might remember we found that the reason Paul wrote this book was so that Christians would learn 
proper behavior in the household of God. And and why was that important? Because, says Paul, the church is the pillar and the buttress of truth to the watching community. And there's no way the community can learn the truth about God unless the church is functioning in the way they should. And so it turns out that, yes, it's very important that, that Timothy put an end to the false teaching that's going on in the church in Ephesus. So much is at stake. The truth about God is at stake. The salvation of the people in the church is at stake. But what's also at stake was the fate of the people of Ephesus, lost in sin, needing to hear the gospel. God was working out his will, his concern for the lost in sending them a church that would preach the glorious gospel of Jesus. And I hope you see that if this perspective is missing, number one, we'll misunderstand you know, the book of 1 Timothy, but two, we'll also misunderstand what God wants to do through your local church. See, how many local churches only consider church life from the perspective of the internal dynamics in their church? And they work to get the right leadership structure, the right senior pastor, the right programs. They work to provide counseling to help people in the church. They build small groups and other places where people can study the Bible, but also build relationships of love and purpose and accountability to one another and to the gospel. There's nothing wrong with that because it's laudable, it's good, it's necessary. But what happens when the concerns for outreach to the lost community is missing? What happens when all we ask are the concerns of our own community? Then what's missing is an understanding of God's heart for the lost. And so, yeah, 1 Timothy does invite us to consider the need for reaching out, the need for evangelism. I know the minute I say that, I can almost hear some Christians groaning. I mean, how many of you feel guilty about what you're doing or not doing when it comes to evangelism? You know, you and I have been told, and rightly so, that personal evangelism is the duty of every believer. But for many of us, that duty seems like a burden. And to others, you know, we encounter this duty in terms of raw terror. I mean, nothing scares us more than that. And so we don't do it. And as one Christian woman said, you know, why should I do evangelism and wreck some of the best friendships I have? And that's our fear. So reactions vary greatly when it comes to the topic of evangelism. Some love it, some hate it. You know, it's just that, that we hate the guilt that gets imposed on us whenever this topic comes up. So let me start with some bad news. Yes, we're going to talk about sharing our faith. First Timothy teaches us that the central task of the church is to hold high the truth of the cross of Jesus to our community. We are like one of those very old temples that we've seen pictures of in Greece or Rome where pillars hold up a magnificent stone roof for all to see. In the same way, we as a local church are to hold up the truth about how God reconciled the world to himself in his cross, to our community, so that they can see. Because your local church is exactly where it is, people who live in ignorance of God in your community can see, understand, and submit to love and truth and come to be saved through the witness of your church. When Paul wrote Timothy, a pastor in a church in an ancient city of Ephesus, Paul was called upon to press that point home. But before he could do that, he has to begin by stopping false teaching and false teachers who had become leaders in that church. I mean, how do you lift up the truth when it's being distorted on the inside of the church? So dealing with false teachers became the first priority. But once he settled that, He got to the first issue to follow, and that was evangelism. But that gets us right back where I started my sermon. 
It's not enough to finally believe the truth. We're called upon to proclaim it. That gets us right back to that uncomfortable job assignment we have. But let me give you the good news, and the good news is that God has told us what to do. So let's get back to 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Now that phrase, first of all, refers to the first duty of the church. Hear that. First of all. There are a great many Christians who believe since Paul gave this as a matter of first priority and since 1 Timothy was written about how to conduct oneself in the household of God, that the phrase, first of all, has something to do with how the church should order her worship. What's of first priority? So first of all, says Paul, I direct the local church that you should pray. Now, we might say, when you meet together, that's a matter of first priority, and I'm going to keep getting back to that point. But then notice also that Paul uses four important words that describe the prayer of the people of God, and we'll go through each one of these. Notice first he uses the word supplications, and the word means to make requests for specific needs. So how then does one make requests for specific needs of all the people? I mean, we don't know the the needs of all the people. But especially in our day, yes, we do. We know it when there's a natural disaster in our country. We know it when there's a crime that's been committed. We know it when there's a health care crisis. You know, we might be praying for the nurses in our hospitals or the doctors and others. And when there is, as in our day, a growing awareness of historic injustices among the First Nations, we might pray for healing and for reconciliation and for their belonging to the wider community. And we pray for our nation as a whole. See, that's how we pray for specific needs, both of our nation and in our community. It's to supplicate. It's to ask God on their behalf. As we do every October, this year we're offering a 2022 scripture calendar based upon Dr. Neufeld's recent book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. Throughout the year, you'll be reminded of God's great provision for those who believe, featuring wonderful pictures of crosses around the world, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and passages of scripture that remind us of all the benefits of our salvation. I believe this is one of Back to the Bible Canada's best scripture calendars, and it's yours for free as our gift. Just call to request your copy today as quantities are limited. We pray this will be an inspiration to express gratitude to God throughout 2022. Call us now at 1-800-663-2425 or visit us online at backtothebible.ca. Additional calendars to your free calendar are also available at $10 each. Paul then uses a second word, and it's prayers. It's the one that we understand most readily. Prayer is approaching God. That is what I think Paul has in view here. When we supplicate, you know, he makes it clear that you're approaching God address God by the names he's used to describe himself in Scripture. Understand that when we come before the Father in prayer, the only reason we should assume that he welcomes us 
is that we've been provided access to that throne through the blood of Christ, our advocate. All Christians who pray then understand they have a unique privilege. Having been cleansed by the blood of Christ, we are now in a position where we can actually do that which all the others can't do. We can pray for them, whereas they can't pray for themselves. A third word Paul uses is the word intercessions. It means to plead for the interests of others. Notice how outside or external looking this is. Learning to pray this way means that we learn to pray by pleading with God on behalf of the well-being of those in our community. And then finally, fourth, Paul uses the word thanksgiving and that we're thankful for them. And what's needed here, I think, is an understanding of God's providence. God provides blessings for all people. Jesus says that the Father causes the rain to fall on the just and on the unjust. And so with that in mind, let's remember how he blesses members in our community and how he blesses all of us because of the way he's blessed them. And so with that in mind, pray for politicians, pray for the police, the fire department, school teachers, healthcare professionals, people who keep our power grid operational, road workers, merchants, business people, judges and prosecutors, for men and women who work in our prison systems, and even for those who are in prison, and pray for all people who keep our society functioning. Pray for immigrants who are trying to learn the language and find a home and a job and adapt to our culture. You see, pray for all people. So when are these prayers offered? Again, I think Paul has in mind that Timothy bring this kind of praying into the church. And on that note, it's tragic how in many churches today, either the pastoral prayer or a prayer in this regard offered by key members of the congregation have been dropped out of our public worship services. But Paul says this kind of praying is of first importance. It's time for the church to renew congregational praying for the community in which we live. Remember, this would have been very near to Paul's heart, for he was a missionary to the Gentiles. He would have thought about praying for Jews and Gentiles, for slaves and for free, for Greeks and barbarians. He would have been praying for everyone, all people groups. This is the reality of missionary praying. Now then, Paul begins to get specific, and he wants prayer now for political leaders and the decisions they make. So let's go to verse 2. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. At first blush, it might seem that verse 2 is simply saying, you know, pray for, you know, kings or in our world, prime ministers, premiers, mayors, MPs, MLAs, you know, they're a subgroup of all. In other words, we should be praying for political leaders that they too may be saved. And this might be very appropriate, especially before and after an election period. Of course, we should, but that's, I don't think, Paul's main point. Paul realizes that political leaders make decisions that affect the progress of the gospel. And so we pray that their decisions will not hinder our ability to freely proclaim Christ. Some people completely misread verse 2, believing that God's will is that we live peaceful and quiet lives as if that's an end in and of itself. So we pray, God help us live at ease and comfortable, well off and satisfied, as if that were the emphasis of the gospel. And Paul in his letters seems to have no concern about that. In fact, if anything, his life was devoid of the very things that we're so often concerned about. His sufferings for the gospel are well known. And added to that is the fact that Jesus warned us that suffering for the gospel is a part of our calling. 
See, all of the prayers in the world will not remove that from us, so Paul can't mean it that way, and at least in the way in which we often read it. So what are we praying for? Well, for one, when Paul wrote this letter, these words must have seemed incredible. Christians had often suffered persecution from political leaders, and Paul had himself been beaten and imprisoned by them. Christians were blamed falsely for burning Rome and were horribly martyred by government leaders. John Kelvin points that out well. He says, Paul mentions this because Christians may have had good reason to hate them above anyone else. All magistrates of those days were implacably opposed to Christ. Philip Ryken tries to put it all in perspective. He says, the church's reputation is in need of almost continual defense. That's partly because the gospel is so radical that Christians are always potential revolutionaries. Yet in the face of opposition, God wants his people to keep quiet. Christians who do not pray for their political leaders tend to disturb the peace. And I add to this one more quote, and this one from the ancient preacher John Chrysostom, and he wrote, no one can feel hatred towards those for whom one prays. So we pray because political leaders are established by God, that leaders will make decisions that will show respect for believers. And in the process, God transforms us to wanting peace and the best for the nation we live in, because when that happens, the gospel can move forward. So when Paul says peaceful and quiet, he means in relationship to the government. And I need to interject here. I mean, so many times today, I hear Christians speaking almost hateful words about people in government. We'll call the prime minister or the president or who have you, he's an idiot, or even worse words than that. No, no, my brothers and sisters, we're Christians. We've been taught to be respectful, to take our duty of prayer most fervently. We pray with earnest desire for God to bless those in leadership and for their families, and we pray that God would guide them so that the decisions that are made which impact our lives would be those decisions which would allow the gospel to go forward most easily. Now then, from verse 3, this is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. And I see here an implication. Believers live peacefully, quietly, and they're well-behaved in society, and we're to be known as peacemakers and not troublemakers. Now, in verse 3, Paul seems to be saying, live in such a way that mirrors the gospel. So we are to live godly lives, and so our behavior in the wider community is to reflect that. We live in obedience and faith towards God in all things, expressing the reality of faith in everyday lives. Now, the word dignified speaks of our interaction with others. It's an ethical term, and what Paul has in mind here is that our dealings with unbelievers reflect the ethics and morality that Christ would want. I remember a dear brother telling me about what happened when he came to Christ. At lunchtime, in his place of work, all the men went to a stripper bar for lunch. And he did not. He brought a bag lunch. It was prepared by his wife at home. He never criticized anyone. He just never went with them. He was dignified. One day, one of the men asked him why he acted in that way, and he explained his commitment to Christ and also to his wife. And this man then asked, you know, can I stay for lunch and eat with you at the office? Because I never felt like that's where I should be going. And soon there were two of them eating together, and then there were three, and then finally the majority stayed away from the stripper bar. They soon found other ways to spend their lunchtime. The one man who had arranged the stripper bar meetings ended up being furious with my friend, the believer, 
but he refused to rise to the bait. He would be dignified. You know what's great about the country we live in? Nothing prevents you from being that way. In fact, the government will protect your right to live godly and dignified lives. And for all of us, we know that the world watches believers. And there's nothing more powerful than seeing believers consistently live out their professions of faith in a peaceful and dignified manner rather than in a reactionary manner. And with that, we come to verse 4. And that's the entire theme of the passage. And that's what we're expecting. The church is praying to God who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. There's so much more to be said about that phrase, and we're going to deal with that tomorrow, that God desires all people to be saved. But for now, let's just reflect on that. How can we pray and live in such a way so that when we actually talk to people about the gospel, that it's going to be our attitudes of love, the dignified attitudes, and not our divisive opinions or our politics. None of that will get in the way as we address people who need to know how to be saved. They need to be saved because God wants them to be saved. And so let's behave and pray to maximize that. Shall we do that? Thanks for your message today, John. You know, I got to wonder, is it possible that maybe we become just too political in the church? Uh, Yeah, you know, I mean, obviously we care about politics. I think all of us do. Those of us who say we don't, uh, I think we may not be being truthful. But it is true that uh, we need to recognize uh, that our first concern is that men and women would come to know Christ as Savior and Lord. And uh, that we need to make the church such a place where an individual who votes on the left or on the right can still come and find faith in Christ and a community where they will be loved. And, uh, you know, if that's not happening, if we become so political and politicized that we've been such kind of people that have made it impossible for people on the different side of the political divide to hear the, the gospel, we're obviously far too political. And I think what we need to do at that point in time is we need to repent and then do exactly what Paul tells Timothy to lead the church to do. We need to encourage the church to pray for whoever's in political office sincerely as God would want us. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Have you made plans to join us April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 for the next Israel experience? Maybe you're holding back and we understand, so we've made it easier to register and easy to be refunded if for some reason we're unable to travel. So don't hesitate, register before the limited space is sold out. Join Dr. John Neufeld, Laugh-Again's Phil Calloway, recently confirmed musical artist Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada team. Travel to the Holy Land where Jesus, Paul, and David walked. Visit the Jordan River, David's royal palace, sail the Sea of Galilee, commune at the Garden Tomb. Well, the full Israel itinerary is now available. So for more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at backtothebible.ca.